Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the maximum return to nitrogen or MRTN approach to NRATE guidelines. We have four members of Extension's Nutrient Management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? My name is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a nutrient management specialist located at the St. Paul campus. Uh, one area that I do work on are the nitrogen guidelines. So the MRTN is one of the things we're looking at now that we'll be talking about today that I work with uh, with those guidelines. I am Fabian Fernandez. I'm a nutrient management specialist as well, uh, located in the St. Paul campus. And my area of emphasis is in nitrogen management. And um, I, I collect a lot of data that goes into this MRTN calculator, and um, I, I work with that data, give it to Dan, and Dan is actually the one that uh, composites all of that data together with other trials and um, uh, puts it for the calculator. I'm Brad Carlson. I work out of the uh, Regional Extension Office in Mankato. I'm an extension educator. And I do the uh, kind of the lead on our nitrogen smart education programs, which uh, really emphasis, emphasizes uh, flexing your management based on conditions and so forth. And so uh, we, we look ex extensively at the MRTN approach, but then also talk about why, uh, why adjustments need to be made under different circumstances. Hi, this is Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher here at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca, and I've accumulated a lot of this uh, NRATE database or data over the last uh, 20 some years. And that's and, and management nitrogen fertilization of corn is one of my special specialties. All right, so starting off, what is the MRTN and why was this system implemented? Well, the MRTN, uh, what that stands for is maximum return to nitrogen. Uh, sometimes uh, you're at meetings, um, we'll, we'll talk about MRTN or what we'll talk about is the economic optimum nitrogen rate, which essentially are the same thing. Um, what the MRTN does is, or, or really why it was put into place was to factor in economics. So looking at essentially um, the return on investment for nitrogen, because if you look at, I mean, a normal nitrogen rate response curve, it's uh, what we call a quadratic plateau where it, the response will rise towards a maximum. And once it gets towards that maximum, you'll tend to see a less, uh, or you tend to see a less yield produced per unit of nitrogen applied. So really what the MRTN is trying to do is to determine what it deems to be the economic optimum nitrogen rate um, where we're managing around that plateau value or around that point at which um, You'll, you'll, you'll hit a point at some point where the, um, the response to nitrogen is negative, where you're not getting, or the dollar you're returning in, or you're, you're investing in nitrogen isn't giving you a, a dollar back in crop value. So why this came into play was, um, I, I think it was, when you start looking at it, we've had some of these price spikes, kind of like what we're seeing before. So there were some discussions among some of the regional researchers in terms of implementing a practice where we could factor in economics because it wasn't done before. Most states had um, some factor times yield that um, they were using to recommend nitrogen. And what they were seeing, or a lot of the researchers were seeing is really when you start looking at just a yield goal based system, it wasn't working out. And if you look at the data, there was really no linkage between um, the optimal nitrogen rate at a given site and yield goal. So 
that's where they decided to look at another approach and make the recommendations data-driven. And that's really, I think the key for a lot of this, if we start talking about the MRTN approach is that it is a data-driven system where we're continually adding data to a database that evolves over time to match environmental conditions, hybrids, and those type of things um, that we can factor that in. And, and it's a little more defensible than just using a simple factor-based equation that um, I don't know if anybody really knows where that came from. So that's one of the things that digging back into some of the data, some of those older recommendations, it was getting harder and harder to defend them. Yeah, well, and uh, in addition to that, there was an um, interest in trying to come up with a regional approach to, to the guidelines, which, you know, definitely the MRTN approach uh, is going in that direction. We still have recommendations based on each state individually. So they, there are state boundaries that uh, make changes, uh, but it is more of a regional approach where we are all using the same approach. The reason the data is different between different states is because we are each each state is responsible to collect their own data, and, and obviously uh, the responses that you get with the different databases uh, make differences. Um, and yes, as Dan mentioned, the the big impetus behind this approach was that when you look at the the relationship between yield and nitrogen rate needed for the yield there was no relationship. And, um, and so there was data and everybody that um, was doing work in the different states had their own kind of approach to the yield goal. And, and those recommendations were certainly based on, on data, but uh, um, that's where over time things started to change. I don't know if it's because of the hybrids or, or different climatic conditions or different management systems, you know, that uh, have evolved over time. But the reality is when you look at the yield compared to the end rate needed to get to that yield, there was no relationship whatsoever. And so this approach was, was started. And um, it was rolled out, I think in 2005, that's kind of where, um, when we started with this approach before that, it was the, for the most part in the states that are participating in the MRTN approach, they were all using yield goal. Well, I think you're looking at the yield goal based system. I mean, a lot of that stuff dates back to a time when fertilizer was relatively cheap. And um, if you start looking at it now, I mean, pricing wise, you know, you, you see a lot of fertilizer pricing um, kind of follow, I mean, the trend really is to follow crop price. So, you know, if it isn't as cheap anymore, really, they're just, it, it just made sense to factor in economics at some point, particularly with nitrogen, since nitrogen, we get a clear response curve. Uh, we look at other nutrients like phosphorus and potassium, we can put rate studies out with seeing like six, eight rates, and you get a, you get a yield response to that first rate, and that's it. So you don't get that clear, um, these, these clear curves that we see with nitrogen that make it really easy to start factoring in economics. So that's, you know, one of the things that, you know, as fertilizer prices have, have shot up, um, that was just one of the things that really made sense. And that's, I think one of the things that a lot of people think about it too, is that when you're managing it, you're, if you dial back, if you look at the optimum, what we call the agronomic optimum, which is the maximum um, yield produced by the maximum nitrogen rate, regardless of economics, is that typically when we're looking at our, our MRT, values or we're within about one percent of the 
of what we have in terms of maximum yield at the given site. So it isn't as if we're giving up a lot, you know, particularly for dealing with the 0.1 price ratio. The thing that'll be, um, we'll kind of have to see is how what the price ratios are in the spring of, uh, you know, 2022 compared to the, just to see kind of how things are at, because I know Jeff, you were talking at some point, um, I know with, with one of your meetings, you were looking at some of these figures and we're looking at, you know, 0.15.2, um, the way things are, are sitting right now, which um, really starts to dial back on the nitrogen. So that's one of the things that, um, you know, kind of, we'll, we'll see what happens this spring because, you know, looking at it in terms of following it, there's, there's, I mean, a, a, you start looking at a bigger dial back with the price situation we're in. But, um, you know, normally everything tends to manage or moderate around a 0.1 price ratio. If you look at historically with the price of a nitrogen, to the price of corn within the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Well, another, another uh, factor that went into adopting the MRTN approach, if we go back to the time when that, that came in place, was there was still a lot of use of the old formula of 1.2 uh, times your yield goal minus your nitrogen credits. Uh, uh, and, and I guess a couple of factors, uh, Fabian talked about the uh, increased nitrogen use efficiency of corn hybrids. The whole 1.2 thing really wasn't holding. It wasn't taking that much nitrogen uh, anymore to, to produce a bushel of corn. But the other aspect is, uh, that formula also sort of assumes that you could just keep right on applying nitrogen into infinity and keep raising your yields. And that's really uh, also what uh, Fabian and Dan were referring to related to there not being correlation between the um, increased use of nitrogen and, and, and yield that you can't just keep putting on nitrogen and see the yield go up. Obviously, that's what the response curve is but it wasn't even predictable from one field to the next. It just simply wasn't working. And so while most of the land grants had shifted to a uh, yield goal system with, with uh, categories in it, uh, depending on, on the needs of each state, the, uh, the old formula was out there. <clears throat> I know there was at least some seed companies, <clears throat> excuse me, that were still pushing that. And it, it was probably important for that to go away too. What are some of the pros and cons to the MRTN approach? Yeah, so that, that's an interesting question. And uh, I always say that there, there is no perfect approach and every, every approach has their own uh, set of uh, conditions that are good and others that are not so good. One of the things that I, um, I think is very valuable about the, the MRTN approach is that it's, it's actually very transparent. Uh, you can go into the calculator and you can look at the distribution of the response curves that um, were used to generate the database. Um, not, not the actual um, response curves, but you can see the, see the frequency where um, a certain um, nitrogen rate would provide the, the maximum return to nitrogen. So you can see that guy that kind of distribution you can see the relationship between yield and end rate as we were talking earlier all of these things that were before were not really presented before the only thing that a farmer had was um, basically uh, an equation with um, a factor typically 1.1 or 1.2 times the yield or something like that uh, now farmers have that, the ability to look at the, the database uh, to a certain degree. And then the other part too is that I, I think is a benefit is that it allows farmers to 
um, deal with risk. This, you know, management, uh, nitrogen management is, is a risk management. And um, what we have in the calculator is uh, the, the economic optimum, but then we added uh, plus minus $1 per acre on the economics so that if you are risk avert or risk tolerant, you can figure out what that rate would be. This is, and like I say, everything has a, a good side and maybe a, a side that is not so good because on one hand, this, this allows farmers uh, more flexibility, but from a regulation standpoint, uh, regulators don't like that because they like to have a specific number, just one number and having a range creates some difficulties in there. Um, the the other thing that um, um, I think is is interesting is that it needs a lot of data. This database uh, has to be large in order to work, and and that again is is a pro and a con. If you have a lot of data, it's a benefit, but if you have limited data to make the calculation, then it could be uh, a problem because any any uh, new site that you add into the database can skew the data substantially depending on on where it is. Um, the the other the other thing that it's again pro and con depending on where you're looking at is that is a generalized approach. You know, we have, for instance, for Minnesota, we have the end rate calculator for continuous corn or corn soybean. Those are the only distinctions, but it's for the whole state. And so there are changes, differences in the state. Of course, we have added now the sands, they are kind of a separate thing that is not part of the calculator, but we deal with those differently. Um, but it is just one approach and, and with the increase of, of interest in precision ag, that's, that's, that can be a challenge because um, the, the benefit, I always say that the benefit of precision ag is that it's very precise, it's specific, but that's the challenge as well because then you have an approach like the MRTN database that is general for the state and you can maybe not use it perfectly for every situation in every field. And so that's that's one, again, kind of pro and con. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the other thing is that uh, there is um, no, no differences other than continuous corn or corn soybean. We don't have any other management um, consideration in the, in the calculator. Uh, you know, there is a lot of interest rate now, for instance, into split applications or uh, having different rates based on geographic location or different kinds of soils and things like that. And the challenge to do that is that, I mean, we have looked at it and I know John Sawyer at Iowa State and Emerson Nafsinger at uh, uh, Illinois have looked at this in, in that they have larger database to see if they can part out some of these things, you know, separated data based on soil types or regions or things like that. And um, where that makes sense, they have done some of those changes, but where there is not enough data, then you're kind of locked into having to leave it the way it is because simply you just don't have enough information to, to determine whether there should be a change in there. Um, and then the, the, the other thing that I can think of as a pro and a con is that um, some, um, some people argue that this is purely an economic thing and it doesn't take into account the environment. And um, I, I would argue that that's not the case when you are doing um, using nitrogen effectively so that the plant uses the amount of nitrogen that you're putting in there, 
the environmental impact is pretty minimal. And we have seen some of that in relationship to nitrate leaching in terms of residual nitrogen in the soil, things like that, where if you're over applying, if you go above the MRTN, that's where you start to have environmental issues. If you're below that, uh, you're not really improving anything environmentally and you're reducing yield. And so, but those, those are some of the, um, the concerns that people have when they look at this thing and say, well, it's an economic. And so it's all driven by economics and the environment then is not part of the equation. But in reality, we need to remember that even though it's a uh, maximum return to nitrogen in terms of economics, uh, the data behind the, those calculations is based on the agronomic response. And again, if the crop uses that nitrogen, then there is no uh, nitrogen loss to the environment at that point. I would add that, you know, I think one of the big positives of this MRTN approach is that it is a database and it's updated regularly. So it, it's not a stagnant model or, or equation that was used for 20, 30 years and we can't figure out where the derivation of it came from. The other big positive, I think, is the fact that you can calculate these price scenarios, which are today's changing prices are interesting. You can put in some different scenarios and see how it changes. And, and uh, that, that as, as Fabian said, that helps you kind of think about your risk and what do you feel comfortable with. I think from cons, uh, is, uh, the fact that we don't currently use it for irrigated sands, I think creates some confusion and that could be a negative. And uh, the uncertainty of how many sites are needed to, to break off into a separate region or area, that, that's also something that we have to deal with and we give a lot of thought to. And then from, our, from the actual input of the data, we know that the, the choose what model we choose um, helps or does influence the economic optimum. And that's something we, we think about and we look at and we critique probably more than we should, but it, it makes us scratch our heads sometimes. And, and that's kind of on the inside of the database. But as Fabian said, the best, I think, positive is that you get a chance to look at that probability distribution of what the optimums were that are in the database. And that really can help you if you're risk averse or or willing to take some risk is you, you're not gonna be right all the time, but where you wanna be is where you feel comfortable with, well, if I'm right 75% of the time, then this is the distribution and this is about where the rate that I need. And that gets back at that acceptable range. When we do the Nitrogen Smart program, we will occasionally get a little bit of pushback from farmers just simply related to the economics part. Uh, we'll, you'll occasionally hear, well, just tell me what the response to nitrogen is and I'll worry about my own economics. And I, I understand uh, you know, where the farmers who, who have that opinion are coming from. I think from an educational standpoint though, the, the, really the, the strength of the MRTN approach uh, is, is that it, it acknowledges that the response curve gets very flat at the top, just the, the same way that I just talked about a little bit earlier, how you can't just keep pouring on nitrogen and see your yields go up into infinity. We know at some point that yields just stop going up uh, when, you know, when you reach a certain amount of fertilization. And, and in particular, you know, we will see yields continue to climb, but very slowly. 
uh, you know, to the point where you're adding lots and lots of nitrogen without a lot of yield improvement. And it, and it gets very difficult to say just exactly where that is, uh, not to mention the fact that, of course, from an environmental standpoint or even an economic standpoint, it just makes no sense. Uh, to keep pouring on nitrogen to get that last one or two bushels. And then from a research standpoint, of course, it's very difficult to even establish where there's a one or two bushel difference uh, reliably. And so the MRTN approach incorporating the uh, economics into it and the, the price of corn, the par price of nitrogen, just sim simply allows you to visualize you know, that law of diminishing returns when you're applying nitrogen. Uh, and, on, and we like to stress when we do the Nitrogen Smart Program that that rate recommendation window is plus or minus a dollar, uh, you know, a, a couple pounds of nitrogen and really a, a fraction of a bushel of corn. So, and that's a pretty wide window. So from the farmer's standpoint, there's a lot of flexibility there. Uh, it really kind of just gets into understanding your own circumstances. And that, of course, is a weakness uh, for the individual farmer to have to try and figure out just exactly where they are at in that system. The variable rate thing is, is really, I think, the bigger issue right now, since farmers do have that option. I mean, they really, you know, for us trying to figure out how to recommend variable rate in with a system where we have essentially is a single recommended amount with a range is, you know, we could recommend, you know, growers vary the rate within that range, but I mean, realistically, there's likely going to be more variation within a particular field. So it's difficult. Um, the, the issue though, you know, looking at it is how do you predict some of that variability? And we're just not there. I mean, you know, Fabian, I know you've looked at a lot at different factors in the nitrogen cycle, trying to predict inputs and outputs. And if you could, you know, come up with some accuracy of that I think we could give growers an idea in terms of um, you know within maybe this MRTN structure and you know how to vary some of the rates within fields but it just isn't there right now so I know that's the biggest probably con I see out of it right now is growers asking us you know I have variable rate how do I use this um, and there really isn't a straightforward answer with that I mean a lot of it goes back to you know what we typically would recommend is starting with the MRTN and making adjustments based on knowledge you have within a particular field that's really the best thing you can do. Yeah, and I, I was going to mention that as well, that uh, when you look at this, you could say, well, this is kind of a brute approach to management, right? Because it's more data is better. Um, but the challenge, the, the real challenge is all these variables that impact nitrogen availability. Uh, like Dan mentioned, I've been doing a lot of work trying to understand the different parts of the nitrogen cycle um, to, to have a better idea of you know, what are the inputs and the outputs and things like that. And our ability to predict these things is very limited. Um, I mean, at best, I, and we have looked at this in many different ways, putting a lot of different variables into the equation, you know, weather, weather conditions, soil types, all sorts of uh, variables. And at best, we are able to predict it about 0.57. So if one is perfect relationship, you know, about half of the time we are able to predict it uh, using all the information that, that we can possibly think of, you know, early season conditions, uh, mid season conditions, uh, precipitation, temperature, the soil type, uh, how much nitrogen is mineralized, the, all those things. And we are still not really able to predict these things very well. Uh, partly because we are not very good at predicting weather uh, or forecasting weather 
in in a way that we can use that information. Uh, by the time we apply 100% of our nitrogen, even if we are split applying, we still have like two months ahead of us where we have no idea what is going to happen. And, and so having this approach where you have a large database, and that's where I think there is a the benefit is that allows you to say, okay, based on all the potential variabilities that are out there that we cannot really predict very well, what is the chance that I will be approximately right most of the time? And so that's, that's a, I think, the, the real benefit of, of having this calculator. But again, it requires a large database in order to start to have some confidence that, that the, the values that we have there uh, will be representative. And um, one thing that I would say in terms of progression of approaches, you know, we start talking about why, why this approach came about in about 2005. Um, if you look back, I, I look at the history of, of um, you know, recommendations from the university and we kind of went from this ivory tower approach where the university will say, well, this is the right number and everybody follows it to understanding that there is a lot of variability, that there are a lot of unknowns. And, and again, that's, as I mentioned, the, the um, transparency in these approaches, I think very valuable because people can see that it's not a perfect approach. We never come across saying, well, you know, the MRTN calculator is the, is the approach and you should use it. Um, we recognize that there are a lot of differences uh, is for specific fields. And the, the thing that I always invite farmers, especially with all the tools that are available out there, is to start with the MRTN calculator and, and do trials of their own in their farms uh, over, over the years, because again, one year data might be completely different than the next year in the same field. Um, but doing these things over time to really adjust the MRTN to their specific conditions. And if they do that kind of research and they, they, they will have the confidence to say, well, in this particular field, I need to go up or down relative to the MRTN because of the, the history that I have collected over the, time, over the years. How is the MRTN approach performing? I think in the sites that I've looked at over the last Oh, I don't know, five to 10 years, it still does a pretty good job in corn after soybeans. And it's, it's frequently, you know, plus or minus the acceptable range. It's within 60 to 70% of the sites. It's still getting them right. Or they're just at the edge of either the negative or the low side of the acceptable range or the high side of the acceptable range. I think where we're seeing more challenges is in our corn on corn sites, especially on our poorly drained soils. And it gets at the, the amount of N that has to be in that plant. More of it has to come from fertilizer and the soil's um, ability to, to uh, provide some of that N is more unpredictable in continuous corn or corn after corn. And that's where I've seen more challenges and wide ranges in, in optimums across the you know, 10, 20 site database. But there's a lot more sites than that in the database than 10 or 20. And, you know, I think the reason, as it, uh, I agree with what Jeff mentioned, and I think the reason the, the approach is still performing well is because of what I think Jeff mentioned earlier, that the fact that we are able to continue to add data to this database, because with these guidelines, there is absolutely nothing that is static about it. You know, everything's changing all the time. The hybrids are changing. 
climate is changing, uh, the way that we do agriculture with you know tillage and other things is changing. And the fact that we are able to continue to add new data into that database, it allows us to maintain a tool that is that doesn't become obsolete. Uh, and I think that that's a huge benefit compared to earlier approaches where it was kind of set and then it would just stay in stone for years before somebody again did some research to revisit those questions. So that's um, that's I think part of the reason we we feel that the, the approach is still uh, it, very good. And we we do see and we've seen it here. We see it in other states as well, where the end rates seem to be creeping up. Um, and that's all related to, to all these variables that impact um, corn nitrogen response. And Fabian, that creep that you're talking about, I mean, that's one of the things we've seen, I've seen consistently in the database, particularly for continuous corn. And I know Jeff brought that up and uh, you look at the data, you know, so the MRTN started, um, we said around 2005, our database stretched back, I think down to 1990, uh, when we, the initial database started. And if you looked at from about 1990 to 2000, corn, corn was pretty consistent at about 160 across all the sites. Um, and then you look at around 2000, then we start seeing almost a linear increase um, in just yearly in terms of the optimal end rates at that given point in time. And I've really been looking at that quite a bit and then trying to break our database down, looking at it in 10 year chunks just to see what's happening. And corn soybeans been relatively flat. I mean, certainly the last, we'll just say five, 10 years, um, we've seen some, we're just a little bit of a jump up and we've seen it kind of climb a little bit here. I think in the last five years, um, I just, um, you know, kind of at the time we're recording this, I went through and I was looking at um, the 2020 data, um, just my data and Jeff's data added in and we're looking at an MRTN jump of about seven, seven pounds on that. So we're seeing that with some of these wetter years where that kind of just to get a little jump for the continuous, or the corn soybean, but the continuous corns, again, it's been a steady climb. And that's one of the things I'm struggling with because I know there's some spots that, um, you know, are likely higher than what we have recommended now. The question though is, and, and I think this was brought up is, you know, really, you know, do you start with the MRTN and make adjustments uh, or do we recommend more nitrogen? And I think we need to be really certain that that recommendation is consistent enough for additional nitrogen across those sites before we do that. Um, because the other option is just saying, and if given circumstances are present within a given year, then apply more in. And we've got some options, I think, to potentially do that. Um, because we really just want to try not to have, you know, uh, um, just consistently too much nitrogen applied just for insurance purposes. And it just really, it's getting that, um, that type of strategy is really not easily justifiable right now, just with a lot of the issues we have environmentally going on. So, so that's the thing. I mean, that's what we'll be looking at here, um, you know, moving forward is, is some of these sites, because we know there, again, there's some sites likely, as Jeff said, continuous corn, that it's been more of a challenge. Yeah, to follow up with what Dan mentioned, you know, I'd say from like 2016 or 2014 through 2020 is kind of that trend where we saw a wetter than normal period across much of the state, state's corn growing regions and that creep of those end rates going up and up. But interestingly enough, the last couple of days I've been calculating our, our results for this or tabulating our results for 2021. And I would say in general, all but one of our sites actually had 
uh, economic optimum calculated values that were considerably lower than they have been in previous years and pretty much in line with the, the middle or the lower side of the acceptable range of the MRTN for both corn on corn and corn after soybeans. And it does make some sense because it was a year that did not have a lot of nitrogen stress. And, and that kind of aligns with this, you know, it, it's not going to be right every time, but if you, if you can uh, adjust it on the fly, that's better or in season, that's better than putting on that insurance end as Dan said up front. Can you talk about uh, alternative approaches to the MRTN? Well, Fabian uh, alluded to the, the issues with MRTN and variable rate nitrogen, and that, that sort of gets gets down to the, the you know, the maybe, maybe instead of saying gets down to it, gets out to the big picture of, of where we kind of have issues with it. And that just simply gets into uh, what is specifically going on right you know, at the individual plant level. Now, now, nobody's going to advocate getting precision to the level of single plants, uh, but the question becomes, you know, in smaller areas in the field, are we seeing variability from, from uh, you know, from one area to the next? And, and is MRTN just simply washing it all out? You know, it's, it's interesting that for years, farmers would say to us, uh, you know, university folks that, that uh, we want to see more large field research because your small plots uh, uh, are, are not representative of whole fields. And now we're doing precision ag work and you're saying, well, we do whole field uh, work. You're washing out all the differences across the field and we're not, no, we're not finding where there's differences uh, from one area to the next. And so, you know, some of the, the variable rate nitrogen work that I've, I've worked with and processing yield maps over the last few years, you know, we've found some, some really incredible yields with some fairly low nitrogen rates. Uh, it really gets into what Dan was talking about, being that when we see a, a, uh, a, a some variation from what the optimum rate is in, in a site or uh, in a year or in a field or whatever that is, uh, can you explain that? And was that something that was predictable? Uh, obviously, predicting the weather, as, as has already been alluded to, is not easy. Uh, but but uh, beyond that, uh, there are soil conditions, there's general weather trends. We know that, for instance, we're coming into this year uh, with a soil moisture deficit. We're not likely to see a lot of pressure related to denitrification coming into this growing season. Jeff talked about the, uh, the uh, MRTN for last year being a little bit lower. Uh, we would expect that under dry conditions and so forth. And so uh, realistically, it, it becomes more of, uh, I guess, what we kind of talk about with nitrogen smart is uh, uh, an, an educated guess. It's it's not uh, just simply guessing, but it's taking the information that you have available and making adjustments. It's not assuming that, that uh, for instance, MRTN is be all and end all, but if you're going to flex your rate higher or lower, having some justification and some reasoning behind that. You know, ultimately speaking, uh, I think some of the crop models that are available commercially uh, will perform this function. They actually record you know, what really happened on the field as well as what all of the uh, variables that went into that, uh, whether it be uh, fr from uh, different hybrids and, and different crop protection standpoints and, and the uh, uh, fertilization and so forth. And uh, long-term uh, uh, big data mining of some of these data sets may actually become very useful and predictive 
but at this point, I don't think we're quite there yet. And so uh, we kind of get back to, like I said, uh, just doing a lot of educated guessing if we're going to start flexing our nitrogen rates beyond where, where we're at with general MRTN recs. And, you know, not to, to feel complacent about the, the approach, because we certainly are not. We are always trying to figure better ways to, to get this tool to improve so that we have uh, uh, a good, useful tool for farmers. But uh, um, one thing that you notice is that every, every competitor, if you will, if you will call them competitors, they are comparing their approach to the MRTN. And so that I think it's it's some evidence that this approach is is as robust as it gets uh, <laughs> at the moment. You know, like when you look at top brands in any in any kind of market, uh, everybody, the competitor, the uh, the um, the generic brand always puts, you know, compared to and, and puts the top brand. Right. And, and that's certainly what it's happening with the MRTN approach. So I think there is a lot of value. It's not perfect, but it is probably the best that we have right now. And one thing that uh, I'm rather alluded to this with the models, there are different models out there that uh, use to predict nitrogen. And uh, the big difference between the models and the MRTN approach is that the MRTN approach um, integrates all the variables that impact nitrogen response into that value that we provide as the MRTN value, uh, because it comes directly from data collected in fields, in real fields with real weather, with real um, nitrogen dynamics. And the models, what they do is they predict some of these things that are happening in the field and put it into kind of a specific thing. So where you have to input, you know, how much rain is happening or has happened and what is the temperature and all of these different things. And then it estimates based on all of that. So it's kind of um, differences in approach. One kind of integrates everything and says, okay, this is what happened this year under all of these conditions. And this is where the MRTN is. The other approach is more of, okay, splitting up every single component and predicting what may happen or may not happen given the conditions that are inputted into it. And, and just like we talked earlier with the MRTN that it's, it's generalized to a certain degree, these things with the, uh, with the models is the same thing because the response to mineralization or denitrification or leaching or all of these things are parameters that are estimated. They are not focus specifically on the measure impact. And I think farmers sometimes feel like they, they get this false sense of security with a model where you can see kind of, a, um, I don't know, a needle moving forward or backwards or whatever, based on the conditions that happen every day to determine what the nitrogen rate is. But the, the important things you recognize is that behind that number, there is a lot, there are a lot of assumptions that are Estimated yes, best possible yes, but they are still an estimation. It's not the actual. Yeah, I think the one thing that's going to be interesting with the crop models as we go on, Fabian, as you mentioned, they're estimating a lot of factors like mineralization, uh, leaching, denitrification, and so forth, is that then they are obviously collecting or, or inputting the data at the end of the season on yield. And so they are able to kind of look at themselves and decide how they performed. And so, as I mentioned, over time, there will be a big data feature of these where they have sort of self-corrected based on their own performance. And, and uh, we would anticipate them getting better and better as the years go by. 
For sure. And and the, the reason I, I become skeptical about some of these things is because I actually have seen some of these assumptions and I've seen these assumptions in my own work where let's say that I am trying to really understand mineralization and I do studies to really focus on that and everything as possible in a field that I can control, I am controlling or measuring. And then I try to predict based on all of that information, what will happen next year. And I looked at what actually happened the next year and I get completely different results. And that's where my skepticism starts because even in a specific field under specific conditions, we are not able to predict things very well. What is the chance that a model that obviously is using much more generalized data to predict these things will be able to, to, to make a better uh, estimate? It's, it's pretty limited. What changes, if any, do you see for the MRTN approach in the future? Well, one of the things we've been looking at, and I think we've alluded to this, um, you know, some of the things that we've seen in different areas of the state, I think, do bear looking at more regionally, um, you know, splitting the database out and looking at whether or not we have a different set of guidelines we can use. I mean, I did this back in 2015 uh, when I took over work on the, the MRTN database, looking at South. I want to really look at Southeast versus South Central, particularly for continuous corn, because we knew at that point in time that the, the numbers were going up. Um, I wanted to see if there's any differences. And at that point in time, there really wasn't any data that says that the two were any different. I think when I looked at them, they were the MRTN values for continuous corn um, for silt loam soils in the Southeast versus more poorly drained soils in South Central and Southwest within a couple pounds. So I need to look at that again. I mean, that'll be the big thing. Uh, Brad, I think brought up uh, some of the, or Jeff brought up um, the irrigated sands. Um, you know, the recommendations we have right now in the irrigated corn publication are based on MRTN. It's just a very small database. I think one of the things that we need to be looking at doing um, now that, you know, Fabian and I have, have more data is looking at putting some of that data into the actual calculator that growers can use it. Um, the problem at that point in time, I remember John Lamb was working on this, um, he really had was the fact that um, the most consistent data he had for irrigated sands was continuous corn. So that's why you see um, some crediting still uh, for some of the other crops. Um, off of the continuous corn recommendation for say corn soybean because either there wasn't enough locations or they're just the data wasn't consistent enough to come up with a recommendation based on the locations you have so I think that's going to be the main thing that you'll see um, you know splitting off potentially the northwest part of Minnesota which if you're using our MRTN approach I mean I'd really look at the lower end of the profitable range um, for northwest Minnesota because that seems to be an area that's different uh, the rest of the state, it's just going to depend on what the data tells us. And that's, again, the thing I like about this approach is that, you know, we can let the data tell us what we should be doing moving forward. So that'll be the big thing um, with it. Um, in terms of anything else, I mean, certainly the thing about the MRTN is we can factor other costs into, say, um, nitrates and drainage water and those type of things. I mean, there's no plan for that, but the nice thing about the, the approach is you can factor in other things. And as Jeff, I think mentioned before, you could look at different fertilizer prices. There's, there's just a, some flexibility with it that um, is nice um, for that. And then uh, we could all, always build some other cost factors in if we ever have to. Again, I don't see that happening but um, there is some flexibility there. So that's the thing I think over the winter here, I'll be looking at um, 
is now I think we have enough data to look at partitioning some of the, the this areas out. Uh, the bigger question on my mind, and this was brought up before, is you know if we see differences, what do we do? And that's where I really want to see this, you know, 2021 and even the 2022 data before I really make a, a large um, wholesale recommendation in terms of recommending more nitrogen in some areas, just to see if we get to back to more of those closer to those MRTN rates, particularly with continuous corn, because you know, we talk a lot about the MRTN being a starting point and making adjustments from there. And that's really where I look at this as, and I wanna make sure that the recommendations um, that we don't go and, and, way, and well over recommend nitrogen in some of these areas. If, if we're making changes. So again, this is something that it isn't um, where a, on a whim we make changes with this. There's a lot of thought process that goes behind what to use in, in terms of the data set and what to do. And um, so it's it's something that we do spend some time on. Um, and that's one thing we'll be doing again. I think this this winter is, is since we're talking about this more since we're about 15 years in is doing a reevaluation, particularly within the state. And the, the other thing that I would mention that I get this question asked a lot is about split nitrogen applications. And right now we don't have that. Um, and I don't foresee making any changes in that regard because simply we see that there is no much difference between a pre-plant application versus split application if we are doing a pre-plant application at the appropriate time, right? Uh, close to the time of planting uh, around that time. Um, and the only times where we see a difference between a pre-plant and split application is in the sands, which that's um, uh, part of what we have in the, um, in the publication for the sands. But for finer texture soils, we just simply don't see much of a difference. The only time we see those differences is when we have extremely wet conditions. And so again, we go back to this thing of not being able to really predict things very well for those situations specifically. And so it, it doesn't um, uh, warrant right now to, to make a different set of recommendations for a split application compared to a pre-plant application. Yeah, we get that uh, quite a bit with Nitrogen Smart. We'll have guys ask us if they can lower their nitrogen rates if they're split applying. And, and uh, you know, the, the research does not necessarily bear that out. The one thing though, that I would say as a caveat to that though is, the extent to which maybe farmers are, are over applying or applying a little higher rate or going higher on the, the uh, you know, in, in the rate window or so forth uh, uh, that can adjust themselves back down or, or if they're, you know, if they don't, they're not comfortable with recommendations and now they're, they're willing to be comfortable with the recommendations because they're split applying. You know, then the overall effect is you are lowering your end rate, but it's not necessarily, we're not necessarily lowering our recommendations, uh, you know, and as far as, as being comfortable with, with actually coming out with recommendations to apply less because you're split applying, uh, I, I, I have not seen that we've got data that we can really comfortably go on that. I guess individual farmers uh, may have enough experience in their own fields that they can feel comfortable with this. I happen to know farmers who do do that and are comfortable with it, uh, but that's not for everybody. I have a, <clears throat> a few site years that do show that, that that was possible, but as Fabian said, it's not consistent enough or enough site years to justify a, a separate recommendation in reducing the rate. Any last words from the group? 
Well, one of the things that, you know, I would just want to say is that, you know, we talk about a lot about the MRTN and it, it's just rate is one of the four R's and a lot of our rate recommendations really are contingent that essentially all the other R's are being the um, source placement timing are being followed that are more optimal for your soil to prevent loss. So, you know, obviously, you know, we do see some year to year variation of that, but Again, it's only one of them and it gets focused on a lot, you know, particularly by environmental or, or people that are worried about um, nitrates in the surface water, but it isn't the only practice out there that we need to be worried about. So it's, it's one of the things to bear in mind that it's, I think, the easiest one to pick on because it's the easiest one to quantify sometimes, but it's, it's not the only R when it comes to nitrogen management that needs to be focused on when you're looking at what's the best option for a field. I'd I would add that I'd love to see farmers if they haven't looked at it and don't know what those MRTN rates are to take time to look at it. And there are programs available, the Nutrient Management Initiative and some others that will actually provide financial support for them to try a their rate versus an MRTN rate in a side-by-side -side strip trial across the field. Do it for two or three years. Um, with that financial support, if you can ask around and find a program that's in your area to do that, there's very little risk involved if you can, uh, if you can do that and see how it compares. All right. That about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>